in the middle now Why am I soft in the middle of the rest of my life is so hard I need a photo opportunity, I want a shot of redemption Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight Far away my well-lit door Mr. Beer Belly, Beer Belly, get these mutts away from me I don't find this stuff amusing anymore If you'll be my bodyguard I can be your long lost pal I can call you Betty Betty when you call me You can call me out A man walks down the street He says why am I short of Welcome to Living Writers. Thank you so much for having me. So, well, thanks for coming down uh, on a beautiful day here in Ann Arbor. Um, it's so great to see you. Um, today we've got your, your second book on the table with us, Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, out with 1913 Press. And we've got Gina Brandolino, engineering, and we've got Stephanie Carpenter Douglas, Douglas Carpenter here, <laughs> um, engineering as well. Um, glad that you're tuning in and listening to join us today, too. Um, Isha, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. We'll start with the convention of the show, um, short bio, and we'll fill in the pieces. Isha Sabatini Sloan was born and raised in Los Angeles. She has an MA in cultural studies and studio arts from the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU and an MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Arizona. Her essay collection, The Fluency of Light, Coming of Age in a Theater of Black and White, was published by the University of Iowa Press in 2013. Her most recent essay collection, The Book of the Day, Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, is available now from 1913 Press. Isha is also the visiting professor of creative nonfiction for the Helen Zell Writers Program here at the University of Michigan. And, and I'm lucky enough to, to know you. Uh, and so I'm, anyway, so glad to see you here today, Isha. Oh, the luck is all mine. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit. Um, this book, wonderful collection of essays. Um, how, how did this collection, how long has it been in the works, Isha? Because um, I know from looking at the different acknowledgments to these essays, have been placed out in the world. So how, yeah, what's what's the story of itself, of the essays? Well, um, to a large degree, I think it felt like it was rooted in this one essay that I wrote um, in 2013, which is the first essay of the book, A Queer Presence. Um, I think that was accomplishing something that I had been curious about in that in that moment in my life um, where I was I was doing a lot of um, not only meditating but um, going to medita meditation um, classes and I was um, in like a, a meditation sangha 
Africa. Um, and one of the things that we did that was really powerful to me was, um, you know, a lot of, of Buddhism requires that you sort of, um, or suggests that you contemplate your mortality and the mortality of others. And um, I think we did this one meditation on um, a series of people in our lives, um, just imagining them sick, um, far away, and deceased. And it was um, surprisingly, um, we did this in a room full of people, and people I didn't know very well in this class. You said it, you, you shared it out loud? It wasn't something that you it was thought internal. of? It internal? was internal? Yeah, okay. it was a guided meditation. I see. And there was something so powerful about that experience, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to write essays that felt like they were encountering death in a similar kind of way, where it was a, a, um, sitting with mortality and with the fact of death, but also um, kind of reaching where we all in this room got together, the other side, which was surprisingly, it was kind of a relief to, to go there. Um, we were all a little bit, and we did share, I think, at the end how it felt. Um, and so there was, there was just a seed in that experience that I wanted to explore. And I had these ideas for essays that I wanted to write. Um, that came to you during the meditation or sometime after because something had opened from that, the seed of that experience. Exactly. Something had opened from that. And it was just on my mind. Um, I also had the idea of spending time, and a lot of writers have done this, and I'm, um, I don't know that I... I followed through on this exactly, but going to locations that where something catastrophic had happened and just sort of s sitting, sitting there. Um, so that was sort of the foundation of the book in a lot of ways, and I think A Clear Presence, that first essay, laid the groundwork for what I imagined the other essays might do. And of course, in the way that so many book ideas kind of open out and
procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you said creative communities, though. Um, and are those folks that you're still in contact with now, even though there's some perhaps distance involved? Um, and, and how is that working? Because then you returned to LA, um, and then you had a return to this, this area, because your family has roots in Detroit, and yeah. you've visited sort of, yeah, take it, take it away, Isha. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I guess return, you've, you've returned to this, this area, yeah. um, Detroit, now Ann Arbor, yeah. and it's Lanny. Yeah. Um. Well, um, I, I felt a <laughs> really naive urge to go back to Los Angeles. Um, I think I thought I had reached a certain level of maturity because I was doing so much yoga and meditating and I was waitressing and teaching, and I just felt really... And I had, I had finished my first book, I had, and I felt really like um, something had, I, I had reached, I had passed through some kind of threshold, and I felt like, I can tackle anything. I'm going to go back to my childhood home. <laughs> Bring it on <laughs> LA. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to just, um, I'm just going to do some writing there, and I think we all know that moving back into your childhood home brings with it complications. Um, but...
taking on the corpse of someone you love seems like it would be traumatic, but might actually bring about a certain kind of relief that you wouldn't ever have expected. What's relief, Misha? I would, I think that that's the word that comes to mind, um, because it's a thing that you avoid thinking about, and I think there's a lot of effort put on a daily basis and not imagining something horrible um, and just letting it happen. Um, I think it just allows for the reality of death to sort of, um, you're just, you, you, you relieve the effort of, of pushing it away. I don't know that it feels good. It just feels like um, some of that anxiety and effort of keeping it at, at arm's length is, is not, not happy. And is it something that you feel like um, doesn't return then? Is it sort of a release valve you've shown your mind or your your being a way of experiencing so you don't rebuild up or you don't ex keep expending that effort or what if what's your experience been well, I, I think there's an app I, I don't have it personally that um, some friends have told me about that just it gives you a reminder every I don't know as frequently as you want that you're gonna die <laughs> and it's rooted <laughs> in the same idea that um, you can't forget it's something you have to keep reminding yourself of, and I think a lot of the philosophies that I encountered during that time um, were an effort to sort of um, weave into your daily life the practice of accepting and, and facing the fact of death, not necessarily once and for all, but just yeah. sort of periodically. And there's a weird way in which it can create a sense of peace, because I don't know what it where, 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 where it is that we think we are living when we kind of build up the idea, this fiction that we're never going to die, but um, it's not real. <laughs> and do you think it connects with the loss as well, or do you think it's more separate from that, like death, the, the thing itself, or as, as opposed to the loss experience after a death? I don't know. I think, um, I think that's That's a good question. I think, I think the loss is is in there, and it, of course, it's different to do for yourself than it is for other people. Um, but um, yeah, it's just maybe tapping in a little bit to that grief um, without necessarily having to. Um, it's just not living in the in the in the in the uh, unreality of, of of imagining that you can, with the force of your will, keep it from happening. I think there's just something about that fiction that's kind of bad for us. Isha, I'm so glad you're here today. Um, I can almost hear my heart beating through this, really enjoying this conversation. And also now I realize why they don't probably put living writers on a Friday, right? <laughs> Things you didn't expect to talk about today, right, Isha, necessarily? But um, today on Living Writers, Isha Sabatini Sloan is here, dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, the book of essays on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Gina and Steph behind the glass, and we'll be back.
welcome back. You've got Living Writers. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, Isha Sabatini Sloan is here, dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit. Um, the book that we're talking about today. Um, I'm so glad you're you're joining us. Isha, thanks for picking the songs for today's program. Um, it was my pleasure. Can, can, could you tell us a, a little bit about what we just heard, the opening notes of? <laughs> yeah, um, there's an essay called Ocean Park Number no. 6 that I wrote um, in part to try to um, kind of take a creative and um, emotional journey um, with a, a close friend um, of my mother's and close friend of mine. Um, uh, and through the sort of artistic um, uh, points, points of artistic um, kind of catharsis that she experienced that we, we kind of shared. Um, the painter Richard Demon Korn in particular, um, uh, the author Michael Landacci. Um, and it was in some ways almost like a, a, a detective story. I was trying to sort of circle around um, something um, in and having conversations. The loss of her son. The loss of her Juliet's. son. Yeah, which in some ways that witnessing her loss um, for me, uh, just biographically, w was interwoven with the fact that she was also sort of the, um, I in many ways, um, benefactor of my artistic coming of age to a large degree. I mean, I had a lot of influences, but she really uh, provided me with a lot of um, important artistic sort of points of reference growing up. And so I was thinking about the relationship that had with just the fact that she's a person who experienced an extraordinary loss. Um, and in order to stay in that space, I noticed that I started listening to um, a certain soundtrack. Um, and one of those, um, one of those songs, or one of those bands, was Grizzly Bear. Um, and I had some really bizarre experiences where um, I, I was writing, I was looking, I w went to a coffee shop and I was reading about um, color. I think I, had, I was looking at Remarks on Color by Wittgenstein. And I looked up and there was Diebenkorn, and I was thinking about Richard Diebenkorn in particular, and I looked up and there was um, a record album with one of his spades paintings. Diebenkorn's, and um, I looked to see what album it was, and it was Grizzly Bear, and I, I, I don't remember, I think that that's one of the reasons I started listening to them, um, but it was a really strange moment that I think in some ways kind of drove the essay. And, and you write about that moment in the essay, too. Yeah. It's a present yeah. part of... Should I... Uh, let me see if I can find it. I mean, I think I just explained it, but I, if I can find it, I can tell you. Um, it probably will just be. Well, and, and you, it's throughout Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, you have many painters and writers, uh, artists, they're, they're interwoven throughout the essays. It, it seems like almost, I mean, maybe not 100%, because I wasn't going through trying to, 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 to see, but it seems like there's almost a painter in every one or so, and, and writers too. And I love that interconnectedness and, and some of the surprises that come from that as well. Yeah, and um, that's always been a, um, a, a cornerstone for me in my writing. I think 
I, it's hard for me to write s about a subject without having kind of the distorted lens of an artist or an art piece to look at it through. So oh, why? Why? I think I just need a third thing. I, I have myself and I have the thing, but there's something about it. It's almost like I'm imagining, I've been thinking a lot about like diagrams and drawings of, of you know, sort of like a, a prism or something like that. But there's something I feel like I have to ping off of before I can get to the thing. Um, in some ways, I, maybe it has to do with a sort of like disavowal of objectivity. Like I need there to be an occasion. I need there to be a um, almost like imprecision somehow or a, um, something something to that, that distorts. Like that when I'm imagining this um, creative act, I'm imagining a distortion, like a um, looking through a prism. And um, so for the Rodney King essay, I, I was looking through the work of David Hockney. And for the um, for this essay, um, Ocean Park Number no. Six, I'm looking at Juliet through the work of Richard Diebenkorn, which is one of her favorite painters, um, and through which she experienced her son's death. Um, so, and yeah, in most of the other pieces, there is that sort of third, fourth, or fifth sort of um, element to kind of contextualize. Because I think I think there's a degree to which I I really resist the idea of writing with any kind of authority. Um, I've never been attracted to that kind of writing. And so I think something that kind of pushes me to encounter a subject um, with this added task of thinking through mm. the art or through the music um, so that it's not pretending to be the definitive the definitive essay on a certain subject. I think that, I, I'm just thinking of that now. It's not something that I've thought about before, but I feel like that's potentially part of, I don't trust that voice coming from myself and I don't particularly like it coming from other people either. I mean, it might depend on the person. <laughs> well, and that, that connects to something that, that you, um, like vulnerability of the writer, like how that would be important as an element to be able to take that risk yourself as the writer to maybe the not knowing? Yeah. Yeah, so many of the authors I've, I've, I've been, I was reading sort of over the course of my MFA that really spoke to me, kind of destabilized themselves as like a kind of ritual offering for the reader. You know, not, not, not ritual offering, that might be a little bit too grandiose, but there's like a, a, a kind of, um, almost, uh, I, I think, similar refusal to be uh, the be-all, end-all, the voice of, of, of logic or, or, or um, um, just I'm thinking about the vulnerability of Eulabis and Maggie Nelson and Claudia Rankine, you know, talking about having cancer in, um, in, um, in um, her first book. Um, oh, Don't Let Me Be don't Lonely. Don't Let Me Be Lonely. And just the ways in which narrators use their fragility and that's a that's a tricky term right now uh, but um, vulnerability too I'm trying to think there was another word that came to mind but their their fallibility as almost a um, it's like a requirement of the frame that they're talking through um, and because I think so many of us need that in order to trust someone yeah and that's that's sort of building the trust with your reader or build it with who you are writing out to exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one hopes. Who one knows? Right. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. Well, well, Isha, let's um, let's. Do you mind? Could we hear from a clear presence? Sure. That, uh, the what we started the the essay that begins the book, um, and that you mentioned lays the groundwork, um, for almost like the how each of these the essays to come um, I don't know came into being that sounds a little bit too much as well but laying the groundwork for the feeling of what's necessary like to have that opening or that distortion yeah yeah um, I'll read just from the very beginning um, a clear presence when I was in junior high school, my mother and I heard the sound of helicopters while house-sitting for friends in the Hancock Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. We had just come in from using the swimming pool when someone on a megaphone instructed us to come outside with our hands up. When we did, policemen were facing the house with guns pointing toward the door. Neighbors were standing on their porches in alarm and a helicopter was hovering overhead. Our dog ran outside and we squealed with terror that they shouldn't shoot her. It turned out that we'd accidentally triggered the security system's distress, distress signal, and it took a while for them to determine that we were not being taken hostage. But the incident was, in some ways, an elaborate confirmation of a feeling that I held already about the house and the city in general, that even though we had permission to be there, we had somehow managed to trespass. When he was a young man, the Olympic diver Sammy Lee was allowed to use the public pool only on a certain day in the week reserved for people of color. After that day, the pool was drained and refilled for the comfort of the white patrons. My father remembers hearing during an interview with Lee that the diver returned years later after his win and confronted the people who maintained the pool to ask why they felt the need to drain it, as if his Korean background and the black skin of his friend had somehow infected the water. They told him that to the contrary, they always considered the order ludicrous. Rather than draining the pool as they'd been told, they would lock the doors for a couple of hours and add a little extra chlorine to satiate the people in charge. But the fact of Lee's exclusion, the lie of his body being a contaminant, had already influenced his understanding of the world. In a recurring dream, I'm swimming in somebody else's pool. The city is always Los Angeles. The grounds are always well-maintained. There is often a flourishing garden filled with climbing vines of jasmine, bougainvillea, and bird of paradise. The house to which the pool belongs is empty. I might get out of the water to wander around, always with the sense that while I've been invited, I'm not supposed to be there. In his book on lucid dreaming, B. Allen Wallace writes that the dreamer can prepare to awaken in his sleep by following the Buddhist practice of shamatha before bedtime. Quote, the mind's distractions are stilled so that one's attention can eventually rest comfortably and effortlessly on a chosen object for hours on end, end quote. In the attempt to cultivate this ability, I stare at a coffee cup on the table in front of me. I feel flickers of that sensation I used to know well as a child. And I could look at a truck parked on the street outside of our apartment and feel the, that the world radiated out in all directions, that infinity existed inside of each scene and every second, like the sound of wind or falling water. Once at a museum in London, I saw a set of portraits by the painter David Hockney. Everyone portrayed in that particular series worked as a docent in a museum. Hockney sometimes uses a roller in his painting so that the shape and shadow that realistically depict a nose or chin float inside a stilled space that has been divorced from the rippling pulse of passing time. 
If, as the curators have demonstrated, you look at the Polaroid image that was used as a reference for the portrait that Hockney would later create, you can see the way that he brings the forensic paints into a new realm by stripping away the subtlest of layers, creating a dimension that is at once matte and luminous, breathing and flat. And though I've only had a handful of lucid dreams myself, I wonder if Hockney's realm isn't just the quiet landscape of a lucid dream, a distillation and capture of that intangible state of being that we have talked to death, can't possibly bear other again, but still seem desperate to enter. Through his brush, the present moment becomes a kind of shoebox diorama inside which the viewer can wander, take refuge, and maybe a nap. Thank you, Misha. Thank you. Thanks. Um, thanks for choosing that part to read, too, today. Okay, we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. We'll talk more. Um, and I love that you ended on, it was so surprising to me when I read it the first time, or perhaps a short nap. <laughs> it was such a surprise somehow. Um, but anyway, so glad you're here. Today, Isha Sabatini Sloan, the book Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, Isha Sabatini Sloan is here, dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, out with 1913 Press. Isha, um, could you tell us a little bit about what we just heard, the song? Yeah, so um, when I was writing my first book, um, I one night I was listening to KCRW, the, um, the program in L.A., and it was the... Um, the, the drive, the donation drive, 
and I, I just, I was, I thought, you know, I do, I should give. <laughs> and so I'll have to have you back for yeah. fundraiser. Do you mind? <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, I donated and, and I got in the mail as a as a prize. I got this album "Let England Shake" by P.J. Harvey, and I could not stop listening to it. Um, and it ended up showing up in one of the essays that I wrote. Um, I think it was called "Silencing Cassandra," which um, is. Well, she, so she did these interviews um, for I think all of the songs um, with veterans about um, their their experience of war, and then she threw she used a lot of the the language from those interviews in the songs. Um, but I, I just found them incredibly um, emotional and cathartic to listen to. And she talks about um, I believe it, I bel I don't know if I'm, this is just an interpretation or if it's something that she said, I'll have to go back to that essay, but I do think she talks about sort of like channeling that pain. Um, but also, um, I was reading, I think, the Glass essay. Um, by Ann by Carson? Yeah, by Ann Carson, and she was talking about that act that someone, a woman would perform, I think it's Chose, um, C-H-O-E-S, um, or something like that. I, I, I shouldn't be talking without it in front of me, but um, that act of sort of, channeling mm -hmm. um, the grief of, of, of um, a community and I felt very strongly that that's what P.G. Harvey sort of um, felt herself to be doing through this album and so that's why uh, that song in particular is just a really um, uh, the, the quality of her voice is very kind of ragged and yeah moan moan like so I just, my poor neighbor, <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, I would just have played it probably 15, 20 times as I was just trying to get in the groove. Because I, I wrote a lot of my first book in the middle of the night, but she never complained, so I think it's okay. But yeah. And it w do you think that that, um, that was something different for you then, writing in the middle of the night when you were writing that first book? Yeah, I don't... I tried since and it's no longer as accessible <laughs> as a time of day for me to write in but I don't know that I think for a while I, d I think I was just I uh, I don't know what it was about my body that I could do that because I I was working two jobs and I would just come home and write till three o'clock in the morning and I don't know why and I, could I didn't need sleep <laughs> yeah could you because I was gonna say could you turn your your mind off then because and be able to sleep. I think. Um, I think, think I was. That's why you have the lucid dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have always struggled with lucid dreaming. My friends, especially in Tucson, were amazing at it. They would have these crazy lucid dreams and talk about them all the time. And I feel like I was kind of the odd man out. I I've had some since. And we, I was just actually teaching at the bio station for um, this um, Glace program and. We talked a lot about dreams, and a lot of people talked about whether or not they could lucid dream. Um, so, and it, it makes its like its presence known in a clear presence to yeah. lead off this this collection. Right. Yeah. In the part that we got to hear before the break, Isha, there's so many. I feel like thanks for choosing that to read, because I think folks will have a sense. Um, of, like really of what's to come because what you're also doing and how um, in a book like Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit I believe a reader gets a chance to kind of know something about um, the maker of 
the book, the, the writer, in a way, because these are personal essays. Because in this same, no, sorry, I jumped to the Ocean Park essay then, um, thinking about um, you at the cafe. But I think, but I think in each of the essays, you're you're moving through time, and it almost feels like there is a pres like, obviously the writer, um, your voice is the the mind at work is present in the present moment. So that I guess maybe would just count <laughs> for. Um, for that element of it. But I feel like there is always these moments of looking back to the previous uh, personal narratives or stories from the family um, or one of your dad's many stories because it sounds like he was a, a, a model as a storyteller as well as an artist, like someone who has made, you know, he w he's a photographer. Um, yeah, and he also, I just, recently started listening to these um, he wrote essays for weekend edition um, and I, I just got a hold of a couple of them because they were really generous and just sent them right over um, and I didn't realize the extent to which even because I always knew that his influence as a, as a photographer and as a, um, a journalist and he does a, he's interviewed people a lot over the course of his career but I didn't realize the extent to which essay writing itself was something that he also kind of modeled. So I don't know that I can take credit for anything. <laughs> really, I'm just co a copycat. But yeah. No, <laughs> no. But um, but well, let's let's talk a little bit more about. Um, well, you're not a copycat. I'll say that right away. It's, it's okay to be a cop. I don't know. <laughs> but um, talking about. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Detroit. Sure. If you don't mind, because yeah. um, your your dad and your mom, both from Detroit, yeah. um, and both like we said at the beginning, towards the beginning of the program today, they've they've returned um, because more family is like s still s obviously still Detroit is home, um, and they are 
1969 house. Um, so, and you have a relationship with the city from re returning as a kid and knowing your family this way, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's more of, well, is it a home base? Because there is an essay, um, well, several essays where Detroit feature in it prominently. Um, and one of the essays, uh, you actually uh, write about that you don't you don't really say bad things about Detroit, like say good things. Um, and you there was some resistance and struggle with even the making and then the publishing of this particular essay. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that as well? Do you mind like this? Uh, I don't know the being like why was this the time? Yeah. is about a ride along that I took with my cousin um, who was a lieutenant and um, she just had been offering for me to go along with her um, and I had always been terrified but for some reason one summer I thought okay I'll do it um, and how old would you have been then Misha? Do you I recall? was in my 20s I was um, it was yeah I think after maybe it was probably 2012 or so yeah two th I think it was 2012 it's probably in well, there well in the essay I yeah. think your your parents weren't thrilled that you were doing it oh or yeah your my dad parents especially uh, yeah <laughs> are never thrilled at that kind of thing um but there is that sort of adage that you know people from Detroit um don't don't say bad things about Detroit and um so I have a lot of difficulty with this essay that was kind of revealing a lot of um, horrible um, stories that my cousin had encountered over the course of her career. Um, and I don't know. Uh, there's a part of me that doesn't know what the occasion was or is for sharing those kinds of stories, but I don't know how productive it is not to talk about um, what's what needs fixing. Um, well, even the, for example, the police car itself, mm -hmm. um, your cousin would be trying to, I don't know if it was roll up the window or just, and uh, like a side panel would just come off right. before you were driving out and, and you buckled up, but she said, I'm not going to buckle up. Like, right. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, it was a, I mean, there it was a tricky time for that department in terms of, I think they ended up getting a little bit of a makeover after that. I, you know, actually, as we're talking, one thing I'm realizing is that um, in terms of occasion, I think I did that ride along before um, before we started to experience this explosion of videos um, that, you know, since that, I don't know that I would feel comfortable <laughs> on a ride along today. There's something that I think complicated um, this essay collection which is to some degree rooted in my family my experience of my family um, that a lot of the essays are, are fairly critical of the police um, and are more kind of situated in this time period of having um, video after video um, released and, and seeing the brutality um, exerted against black bodies and so I think it felt 
honest, I think, to include an essay that gives space for the narrative of a, of a police officer who's in my family, because I think um, it's just true that that's part of my experience, and that's part of, and she too, I feel like, as a woman, brought a kind of um, unique perspective to her role. You know, she's a very nonviolent, well, it's complicated to say, but like she never used her gun and she used she used her personality in a way that I think a lot of people talk about now trying to imagine what it would look like to reform um, police brutality. Um, so I felt like there was something about her voice in particular that feels important to think about now um, because she's just a very um, clever, um, competent communicator and um, it was really fascinating to see her on the job um, diffusing tension and knowing how to read a situation because I think so much of the problem is that people don't bring that skill set and you know I can't speak for everyone but um, so I think that's part of why it felt necessary to bring that essay into the collection even though there's a lot about it that I'm unsettled by um, yeah I think it's interesting that you mention gender as well um, as your cousin is as a woman um, because I think in the ride-along play that you're narrating, um, we're going to talk or writing about, um, that there's it's all women cops that are on the scene, mm -hmm. and you even are aware that maybe that's what made this domestic scene play out the way it did. If other people had been involved, perhaps it wouldn't have. There was it a would lot have escalated. Of, yeah, there was a lot of duplicity and concern.
terrific writers um, to the Hessels today. Michelle Sabatini Sloan is here dreaming of her body in Detroit. The book's on the table with us. Um, thank goodness for Chris, right? Yeah. Michelle, I, <laughs> I, I miss him. I know. Um, yeah, me too. Well, the next song, um, so because we were in a really heavy place just now, the yeah. last, I might contextualize where that was coming from. Um, right after Chris passed away, which was not a happy time, um, my father and I ended up going on a road trip. And so he, every, everywhere we drove, um, that song was playing. Um, and so that's why I chose it, because I did a, um, I did an essay called, um, it's very long. So I went to for a road trip with your father in honor of his 74th birthday, which happens to coincide with the occasion of Chris's death Also a way of surviving that experience. 
I was really disappointed that it didn't include a YouTube. Um, there's something about that flow, even though I kind of can't quite get to the end of it. It takes you to cities. Um, black people are the only way in the gray cities of Illinois. Um, I'm thinking of colloquialism. things that come to mind are quite um, intense and crude and, and it's like these really kinds of things into these spaces. Like I was just reading, rethinking about one of his pieces where he um, he just crawled along the top pavement in New York City um, as a performance, but also to sort of, and I, I think this is quoting from an interview, but that I would draw attention to the lived experience of Jewish people, which is, is making his work seem So there's, there's more. 